Circuit Cast with your host, Mark Amory. Kia ora koutou, welcome to Circuit Cast. This month on the podcast, we're speaking to Michael Nicholson, a Wellington based video artist, sculptor, painter, and poet, an artist who's worked over many different disciplines over many decades. Michael was born in England in 1915, and in 1953, he came to New Zealand to teach at the Elam School of Fine Arts. He exhibited at one of the Auckland's first dealer galleries, Peter Webb, uh, and then later moved to Australia where he had a successful career in public sculpture. But back in the 1970s he became interested in new technologies using one of the first video synthesizers, the Scanimate, to create a series of what he called visual music pieces. Then in 1988 he moved to Wellington where he remains and he started creating photo colleges and installation works and video works. His visual music project was restored and exhibited at the New Zealand Film Archive in 2008. It's still in circulation and it's been shown at the Te Uru Waitakere Contemporary Gallery in 2015. Now Michael Nicholson's work is the subject of a superb book that's been published this month by Steele Roberts. It combines poetry and image in different sections and it really shows how diverse and adventurous his practice has been over many decades. And it's our delight today to uh, visit Michael here in his home in Thorndon in Wellington. Kia ora, Michael. One correction. I'm only 101 years old and not 102 years old, as I would be if I'd been born in 1915, as you just told your audience. Ah, well, congratulations on that. We're looking forward to the 102nd birthday. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks a lot. Let us talk first about the book, and I'd like to first um, talk a little bit about the social power of art, the social business of art, as you refer to in terms of Aboriginal Australian art. I'm kind of interested what you see the social power of art to be. What I see is the social power of the absurd, the irrational reverence for the absurd which uh, I include in my thinking as a description of religion and of uh, the art world. And I would give you, for example, the practice of the Australian Aborigines who deal with their misbehaviour, if it's serious enough, by a routine which is thousands of years old, of pointing the bone at the miscurrent. And because the whole of Australian Aboriginal civilization believes in the effectiveness of this ritual, which is absurd, the culprit leaves the tribe and goes out into the outback and dies an unpleasant death. And uh, when they tried this on the white man colonizing, it didn't have any effect whatsoever. And the reason for that was that the white man had no conception that it might be harmful, the irrational reference element was missing. In your introduction, I quote you, you you say that in this individualistic age, as the power of traditional religions fades, art making will become the main spellbinding mode of witchcraft practice. I mean, is this a a good thing? Why do we need witchcraft? Uh, I quote Simon Weil, the mystic philosopher, 
who gave the heart of her feminine love to her deity in order to draw down from the deity the power to live her life gracefully. So that we need this alternative option to making a fortune on the stock exchange as a source of social power. And there was, well, you know, the poetry of William Blake. Indeed, yes. William Blake tells that now that the church has atrophied, there's nowhere for him to go but to the art world. Well, this draws me to a question that I think you probably have been asked a lot in interviews, which was your involvement in having a military career in the Second World War and leaving that as a soldier and becoming an artist. I was interested in asking you whether that military career influenced your interest in the power of of the absurd, of of absurdism. Uh, Well, I hadn't ever thought of that. I don't think uh, there was very, very much exchange of power from absurd means, which <laughs> was all uh, dive bombers and uh, heavy artillery. <laughs> so what, what do you think is the job of the artist then? I don't think the artist has a job. You know, people ask, well, what are you doing for society? I'm not doing anything for society. I don't think that's the artist's job. The artist uses the power of his absurd practice to gain social mana from which a form of derivative is the power to stay alive. Well, that's a, that is a very individualistic point of view. So what would you hope as someone who's produced so much artwork over the decades that your art would give people when they, when they see it? Uh, a living. <laughs> By rather indirect means. Yes. (laughs) But uh, there's also that irrational reverence which people express when they go to museums and galleries and stand before the work and take from it the experience of, I can't say of the artist, but of how they experience what's in front of them as colour and, and form. You've worked a lot with new technologies as they've come along in, in, your, in your time, and do you see the artists in some way exploring the language and furthering the use of those things which in a way is useful to society? I would always delete the useful for society. <laughs> Go to dive bomber uh, designers and people like that for things which are useful to society. But if there's not the kind of disembodied experience as like poetry or reading a good book or looking at a beautiful work of art as an alternative to doing something useful to society. And my research practice, I think in the book you can probably see how uh, my previous work led up from the kind of virtual music concept which say because of their generation of art making, which was non-figurative. They talked of virtual music because there comes a point when somebody invents movies. So suddenly you've got a moving picture. And as I 
rather primitive way discovered in my own work. Now you've got moving pictures and uh, it's possible to have actual visual rather than virtual music. I guess one of the interesting things about this book, Visual Language Games as it's called, is that it features uh, quite a lot of still images of, of moving image, of, of, of video works that you've created, or, or at least that there is this interplay between movement and stillness. Well, there's, uh, I've used scrambled pixelated images, uh, which are a byproduct of the process of working out the visual music three. How did you make the broader decisions of how you structured the book? You'd, you've designed this book and it's, it's in its own way an interesting design structurally in terms of the rhythm of the book. Uh, I used those pixelated images uh, as a punctuation. Each of them contains a poem and then uh, the serious work of the book goes on again. There are ten different projects which are illustrated by examples from them. So ten different projects or in ten different sections, yes? Uh, well, there's, it begins virtuously with drawing, then there's a poem, and then it goes on to my sculpture work. It starts with domestic sculptures, which are small collage images, and then it goes on to the, uh, after another poem, to the um, public sculpture, which I made in Australia. Mostly in Australia, yes, yes. And so on through there. The poetry that's in the book, which I've really enjoyed as your own, I'm presuming, when was the poetry written? Was that written over a, a long period of time as well? Uh, there are odds and ends which uh, have happened uh, without any particular date or time. Mm. They've accumulated. They've accumulated over time, yeah. But I don't regard myself as a poet. What is the impulse, and you must have thought about this a lot in looking and bringing the book together, the impulse that kind of unifies all of your work? Uh, I haven't had a retro book provides uh, a retrospective of my work as an artist, and uh, it gives me the opportunity to do something with a huge accumulation of photographs and other rubbish around the studio, uh, which may create interviews. <laughs> well, it's certainly been successful in that. Um, one thing that um, we noted in the research was a kind of a sense that there might be a beat or a pulse or a rhythm that's often evident in your work. If we, one thinks of music and how, for me, music has a regular often has a regular pulse and a rhythm that which is then is is played with and broken that this might be quite consistent through a lot of your work in all sorts of different media. Well I think um, the process that I'm involved with one thing very much leads to another. I've avoided having uh, a gallery which demands that I uh, well that I first of all misbehave in order to become notorious and then has the expectation that I would develop a brand and reproduce it in one way or another annually with a certain number of work. That to me is a sort of uh, cage which I never wanted to get into. Well I guess one thing that has definitely been 
true of your practice, you've constantly embraced or explored new ways of working and new technologies. One thing has led to another. At one stage, I think, I made art with whatever space and tools and possibilities were available at the time. And so the environment, physical environment, made a lot of difference. In the 1970s, as I mentioned in my introduction, you were, were using the sort of Scanimate synthesizer, I think, was it Sydney? Oh, the Scanimate was... Uh, I heard that this was used in the animation for the Star Wars movie and... and this is in Australia. Mm, yes. I was given a sabbatical leave in 1960 from the Keelam School. And so I went to Australia to see what openings were there. I was given, amongst other things, a job as a visiting tutor at an upcountry university in Australia. And there they had an art department. And amongst the amazing technology they had was a scanner, which could do wonderful things. Like you could feed scraps of information to it. What sort of scraps of information? Well, it could be a scrap of paper, it could right. be a, a description of something which they could describe on their computer, which would go in. And then uh, it could take up that impulse and uh, do things with it, like right. changing its shape or joining it up with something else. Yes. It's very primitive, but it could do that. Maybe it seems primitive now, but very much would have felt very... Well, I couldn't believe my eyes. <laughs> and from there, did you start to work more in, uh, in moving image and video? Was that... Well, I didn't try and do anything more, uh, really, because I thought this was stuff for the kids. They'll pick up on it, and the geeks will do something uh, wonderful with it. But when I got back to New Zealand, I thought, well, let's see what they've done. And I couldn't find that anything had been done other than uh, Len Lai, yes. who had done much of the same sort of thing yeah. as I was trying to do. Uh, yes, yeah, so were you thinking right back to his hand-painted film works? Yes. Back to the 1930s even, so we thought, well, why don't we have a go? We got together with um, video people and they put together properly cleaned up and edited versions of the raw material. Well, I'm, I'm quite interested to the attitude that people might have had to, to this new media work, both then but also over time, as to whether it was how seriously it was taken or whether it was seen as some kind of... I don't know, lesser kind of art form. Well, I have been wearing mamas from the American crowd. As far as I can find out, there are wonderful facilities available now, and the things you can do with the uh, medium are amazing. And it does wonderful work as background for advertisements. Yes. It yes. never made use of uh, for its own sake 
pågått det är det du säger att det är en similare sitting through a music concert producers. Mm. Well, so my, my view would be that new media art, as it might be called, or the use of this technology in different ways for its own sake has, hasn't ever really been treated as seriously as it should or, or could over, over, over recent decades. So why isn't somebody doing something with this? Wow. It's such a lovely potential there, I would have thought. Do you, I mean, do you have a view on where this relationship between art and technology might go in the future yourself? Well, the fact that it's changing so rapidly, and I have no very clear idea of what people will do. I know what I would do what if would I be? ever had the <laughs> resources. What would it be? What would, would you do if you had the resources? built up on potential that was opened up in the visual music. There's uh, an absurd element here, and what the next trend that people pick up on will be something somebody's doing somewhere in the world, which is in itself absurd, and because it's absurd, uh, I have no idea, Uh, I can't predict what it might be. Well, I'd like to finish by um, asking you a question framed with a poem of yours. The poem, um, I will just read it if you don't mind, uh, is, if you want to know what it is like to be 99 and lame, imagine yourself a used car, too old to get a warrant or insurance, alone at 3am in a multi-storey mid-city parking lot, abandoned and waiting to be towed away. Quite a sad poem. I'm wondering if things are better at 101 than they were at 99. <laughs> what is it like to be 101? What is it like to be 101? It's uh, really weird. Uh, instead of having just yourself to manage, uh, because everybody has uh, been talking about your uh, being rather grown up, You've got this elephant now that's a hundred or more who you have to manage. (laughs) That sounds like a new poem that needs to be written. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, That's a thought. Well, well, good luck with the poem and and, and everything else. It's been a real pleasure to to see and and talk to you. and to the listeners, you've been listening to Circuit Cast. And uh, for more information, indeed, on Michael Nicholson's work or on Circuit Cast, you can go to circuit.org.nz. Kia ora. Circuit Cast is brought to you with the assistance of Creative New Zealand, with music by Heat Pump. Follow Circuit Cast on iTunes. For more information, see circuit.org.nz.